A viewer recently asked a really good question. And normally in these viewer question videos, I would read the question here and then I would start talking about the answer or unpacking it a little bit more. But we're not going to do that this time because we have a special guest coming in to answer this Disciple Dojo viewer question. So sit back, get ready, click the subscribe and the notifications icon if you haven't yet done so. That is one of the most helpful things you can do to help grow this ministry channel. The more support we have from viewers, the more we're able to do cool stuff like have a world-renowned Hebrew Bible scholar in to answer your viewer questions, which is exactly what we have this time. So enough for me, let's get into it. So as you can see, I have brought in a ringer, an expert to talk about, somebody who spent a lot of time on this issue of the image of God, and that is my good friend, the original Disciple Dojo OG. You're, you're a Disciple Dojo black belt by now, if not super <laughs> yes. close to it. But Carmen Imes is here. Dr. Carmen Imes, all the way from sunny Los Angeles. Carmen, it is so good to have you. How are you today? I'm doing really well. It's in the 80s today in sunny Los Angeles, and we're in late October, so isn't that strange? <laughs> You're going <laughs> to so do Christmas at the beach. Yeah. <laughs> Halloween and Thanksgiving and Christmas at the beach. I think I'm, it's still, like I'm still in my Canadian mindset where October you need to have like leggings under your jeans to stay warm. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit different in Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, the reason for those of you who just... Maybe this is your first time watching Disciple Dojo and you're like, oh, who is Carmen Imes? Well, go back and watch our previous discussions because she is one of our favorite guests here. We've had some great episodes prior, but her newest book is called Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. And if you've watched Disciple Dojo, you have seen me plug this book in my Old Testament things I've been reading in 2023. This was on that list. And so when I got this viewer question about the image of God, I said, I could try to take a stab at it. I've read Carmen's book, so I could just kind of parrot her ideas and pass them off as my own, but that would not be ethical. And I can go right <laughs> to the source. So why get secondhand knowledge when we can go here with Carmen? So Carmen, I want to read you this viewer question, and then I'm literally going to turn it over to you and right. let you answer. And, and we're just going to chat about this. So the viewer asked... In Genesis 127, when it says we are, quote, made in the image of God, what does it mean exactly? I hear people all the time say that it means we were made with the characteristics of God. But I grew up, and I think she meant to put believing, she says, but I grew up believing and still believe it means we were made in the triune nature of God. We are body, soul, and spirit. First Thessalonians 5.23 refers to this. When it says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bit of a long question, and you mm -hmm. can tackle this in whatever order you want. But the gist sure. of it is, what's the image of God? And is there any validity linking it to First Thessalonians? Uh, how would you yeah. answer this question, Dr. Carmen Imes? Yeah. Okay. So what I would start with is by taking you back to what it says in Hebrew in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, when it talks about the image of God, 
And I'm so glad that the viewer asked this question, what does it mean exactly? Because I think the history of interpretation on this passage has been filled with a lot of speculation. Mm -hmm. People have assumed, okay, to be the image of God is something special. It's something that sets humans apart from animals. So what are all the things that make us different from animals? And then we're going to put all those things in the container that's marked image of God. And I think it's more helpful for us to go back and say, what does it actually say in Hebrew? And to constrain our imaginations a bit and, and zero in on what exactly the word means. Let me pull up the Hebrew here on the screen. So those of you that are watching, uh, we have the Hebrew here on the left-hand column, and then the this is just the NIV 2011 on the right hand. But so Great. as you're talking, Carmen, I will yep. let viewers uh, see what you're referring to. Great. So there are two words, two key words in Genesis 1:27 that refer to well, actually 26 image and likeness. And there's a different Hebrew word for each of those. The Hebrew word behind image is tselem. And because it's plural here, made as our image. And then the other word is demuth. And so these two words are not a mystery in, in the Hebrew language. We don't have to speculate about what they meant. And they don't refer to certain capacities or characteristics or uh, intangible Uh, similarities between people and God. They are very concrete. A tselem is a three-dimensional representation of a deity or a king. Uh, It's a statue. So, if if you look up this word throughout the Old Testament, what you find is that the Old Testament, when it's talking about idols, it's often using this word tselem. This is what the nations are bowing down to worship Selim or Selimim, and they're supposed to be worshiping Yahweh, who doesn't want any idols to represent him because he's already made physical representations of his presence, and that is humans. So, humanity is the physical manifestation of the presence of God, or manifestation sounds like we are God. We're not God, but we are the physical placeholder or reminder of the existence and presence of an invisible God. That's what it would have meant to ancient Israelites. And the word demuth or likeness that's being paired here with with Selim just reinforces that idea of a kind of um, correspondence. We correspond to God in that he's appointed us as his official representatives. So there's an there's a wonderful example of this in the ancient world that has helped to crack the code or or solve this problem and that is a statue of King Hadad Yithel of Guzan and he has the the statue of this king has a cuneiform like little wedge writing on his skirt And it describes what the statue is. It tells us who it is. And it identifies it as a tselem and as a demuth. So we know that tselem and demuth are synonyms, that they are both being used to describe this three-dimensional object. And so it's our physicality, it's our human embodiment that qualifies us to be the image of God. Now, that doesn't answer the larger question of, What are other ways that we might be similar to God or different from animals? It's not like this is the only thing we need to know about humanity. But when the Bible appoints us or designates humans as the image of God, it's saying that we are that physical 
three-dimensional representative. So the viewer um, pointed to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, which mentions body, soul, and spirit, wondering if that's like an echo of the Trinity and if we're made in a sort of tripartite, almost Trinitarian sense. I don't think that that uh, that possibility is inherent in the text in Genesis chapter one. We may have similarities with God, and one of those similarities is a capacity for relationship and a a, a uh, how would it how would I say it? We want to be in relationship. We relate to one another. We're not meant to be alone. You know, it says in chapter two of Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. So we're created as relational beings, but that itself is not the definition of what it means to be the image of God. So we are the image of God together. Uh, Genesis 127 says male and female are God's image, and that together we're told to rule over creation. So that's the implication of being the image is that we rule over creation. But I would I would be hesitant to say that we're Trinitarian in some way, or that even, even I'm hesitant to say that we are tripartite. Um, I know there's a lot of debate about how many parts are we made up of. I'm an Old Testament scholar. And from an Old Testament point of view, we are complete unities. Like we, there's no way to separate my uh, intangible parts from my body. And even the Hebrew word that's often translated soul, the Hebrew word nephesh, can re refers to people including their bodies. There's even a passage that talk about a dead nephesh. And so it's it's not clear from a Hebrew way of thinking that there are that we're two parts or three parts. We just are human, and that our humanity, our personhood, includes our bodies. And I don't think they would have tried to separate it out into parts. So I suspect that what we're seeing in First Thessalonians five twenty three is a is a development, a New Testament development. Uh, that may even be influenced by Platonism or other, you know, currents of thought in in that time period about spirit and soul and body being three different parts, and Paul is utilizing that or responding to that in some way. Um, I'm I'm agnostic about how many parts we are if we can be part parted. <laughs> <laughs> right, like you um, can't so, chop us up into our three right. or two different parts very neatly because right, it's, it's all yeah. I think I think part of what I'm trying to push against is there's a there's a common response or a common approach of Christians to the idea of the afterlife that sees this body as a shell, simply a shell to be discarded so that the true person who's intangible, you know, our spirit or our soul or whatever, can be released and freed from these bodies. And that is a very platonic or dualistic way of thinking about a dichotomy between body and soul that or body and spirit that I think is unbiblical. Mm -hmm. The Bible says that when God created our bodies, he created us good. Uh, he said it was very good and he gives us embodied tasks to do. And those tasks continue on into the new creation. We're not going to be released from these bodies 
to spend eternity separate from our bodies. We are going to be raised from the dead in our bodies and live and work and reign in the new creation alongside the risen Christ. So I think what I'm trying to push against is this idea that we should separate our bodies from the true us that's deep down inside. Right. The idea that we're just a shell. Uh, yeah. or our bodies are just a shell and that our spirit, I mean, that's straight Platonism, you know, your spirit has mm -hmm. to leave this earthly realm to get to yeah. the good. And that's responsible for so much bad theology and, mm -hmm. and poor understanding. I mean, when people reject the idea of heaven, because they're like, well, I don't want to be on clouds playing harps and yeah. It's like, well, okay, cool. You're not rejecting heaven because <laughs> that's not what scripture teaches at all. Yes. Yes. <laughs> You're rejecting the false idea of the afterlife that probably should be rejected anyway, because yes. that's not what we're built for. Yeah. We're built to steward creation, be benevolent stewards of the good world that God made. And that purpose persists into the new creation. Well, let me real quick, shameless plug for Disciple Dojo, because you mentioned the statue of, of Haradita mm -hmm. or Harariti. And yeah. we actually here, we have a video, um, the image in a garden, and we look Yay, at that great. concept specifically. And we actually show that statue, uh, the actual Perfect. picture. So viewers can take a look at that. Let me try to refocus the question a little bit, because somebody may still ask, okay, so image and likeness, you're saying those are mm -hmm. technical terms. Those are terms that have cultural mm -hmm. ancient Near East meaning. We don't have to yep. guess or wonder. Right. So then I thought we're not supposed to have anything to do with idols. And yet mm -hmm. you're saying we are idols or, or mm -hmm. you know, the equivalent. How does that work? Because that starts to yes. make some people maybe a little nervous. Yeah, good question. We are not to make idols and we are not to worship idols. So the fact that we are, that we are the three-dimensional representatives of God is not a problem because God made us this way. He, he appointed us. He's the one who gets to decide uh, what human beings, you know, which human beings are alive and what our role is. Our, our identity is a given, is God-given. But we're not supposed to go around making idols. And what's fascinating about the making of idols is that it not only diminishes God— because it suggests that somehow he's like this thing that we've made that's inanimate, but it also diminishes us. We are diminished by the creation of idols because we're displacing ourselves from the role that God gave us to direct worship to him. So ancient Near Eastern people understood that when they saw an idol, that wasn't the actual deity, but that it was just a representative of the deity, an authorized representative. And so when they brought worship to that idol, they understood that it was being deflected to the actual deity in the heavens. And that's what we're supposed to do is deflect worship to the actual creator who made us. And so it's at this, it's simultaneously to be the image of God is simultaneously exalting our status because it, it recognizes that we are not, uh, we're not worthless, but we are, we are, have a God given dignity and value. But it also puts a cap on that value because we are not God. We are only God's image. So there's this wonderful like middle space that we occupy between the deity or the God who made all things and everything else that God made. And we occupy that space and we all occupy it together. There's nothing that you can do to qualify yourself to be the image of God or to disqualify yourself. 
every human being is the image of God. It cannot be lost. It cannot be diminished. I explain all of that in my book, why uh, why I think that, as well as what I think is going on in Genesis chapter 3, because that's the question that's usually the follow-up is, well, what then is happening in Genesis 3 if we're not losing the image? Mm-hmm. And you talk about, do you use, what, do you use the term, I, I could look it up in the book, but what do you think happened at Genesis 3? We didn't lose the image. I think we lost the, we lost the glory that is, that attends those who are God's image and are living consistently with that status. I like to use the language of alignment. That's the Mm -hmm. best word I could think of. Like, we are the image of God, but sometimes we don't live in alignment with that. We're we're out of kilter because we're living according to falsehoods about ourselves or about others. We're treating others as if they're not the image of God. We're directing worship to the wrong places. We're thinking, I have to earn dignity or I have to do something to qualify myself to be worthy. Those are lies. And so what happens in the garden is Adam and Eve strike out and try to find wisdom outside of God. They they seek it outside of God's boundaries. And that is out of alignment with what they were created to do. And so they lose the glory that comes with being in alignment, but they haven't lost the identity. So that as they learn to to live well in the world and live according to way to the way God has designed them, the they they become realigned, and then there's a, a radiance or a glory that comes from that. So Christ in the New Testament is called the exact representation of God. He is the image of God. He's the image of God not because he's God, but because he's human. Jesus, oh, that's be a clear, great point. To be clear, Jesus is God. Right. I'm not saying he isn't God, right. but being God is not why he's the image of God. He's the image of God because he's taken on human flesh. He's a, now a three-dimensional representation of God like we are. So mm. Christ as the image of God is showing us what is what does it look like to live fully in alignment with what God says is true about me, uh, to, to live in congruence with my true identity. And we can find out what that's like by watching Jesus. And he's got all the radiance of God's glory because he's fully in alignment with that identity. Now, it was it was a few months ago. It was right when the book came out that I read Being God's Image. Did you, did mm-hmm. you make that exact point in the book? And I'm just blanking. I did. You did. I did okay. because because that's one that a lot of podcast interviewers have said. You said something really interesting, and then they quote that line, and that's the one that yeah. kind of grabs people. Like, wait, what? Yeah, because no, we that's just great. assume, of course, Jesus is the image of God because he's God. Well, yes. no, he's the image of God because he's human, and and his incarnation, the incarnation, is what brings it all. Like, yes. unites heaven yes. and earth. Yes, which is what was. Uh, distorted at the fall was that unity of heaven and earth of humanity yeah, and God exactly together exactly and all of uh, the Levitical you know like like uh, Miles Morales talks about the the whole Levitical uh, worship corporate structure was presenting the idea of returning having mm-hmm. communion going in coming back to ascending the mountain of God and having yep. a meal in the presence of God all of that was yes, yes. imagery of saying, the goal is to reunite what has been mm-hmm. broken mm-hmm. apart. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. That's one. Well, I did not remember that line from the book, <laughs> but I think it's because I had so much else in the book highlighted. Yes. That, that just receded <laughs> into the background. Tell me then, how how would you feel about, I think about the image of God and what happened at the garden. And I, want you, I mean, I, I'm just literally asking you, fix my theology if it's uh, broken mm-hmm. here. But I think of you have a mirror, like you said, you know, an, an idol is something of a mirror in that it represents or presents the image of the God to the people in a way mm-hmm. that they can, you know, wrap their minds around. So if humanity is the image of God, what happened at the garden or the fall, the image wasn't ever erased or eradicated, like you said, but I think of mm-hmm. either two images, um, either a mirror being distorted, like becoming a funhouse mirror being warped. Mm-hmm. And so that there needs to be like a re smoothing, a realignment of it, or a more stark image would be a, a, a mirror that's shattered. Uh, it still reflects, yeah. you can still see in yeah. it, but you can't, you don't have the clear reflection of what it was originally supposed to do. Are those yeah. in the ballpark of, or do you think there's a better analogy or way? Yeah. Of- so I'm not a fan of the mirror analogy just because I think it reinforces what so many people misunderstand about the image. They think Mm -hmm. that somehow we look like God or that we have to look like God to be the image. And so that's why I think a statue is a, is a better analogy because we're not, not even, it's not even really an analogy, (laughs) although um, because it's the actual word selum, that's what it is. Right. A statue doesn't have to be the exact likeness of the person or thing that it represents. It's a Mm -hmm. stylized uh, th- there's certain stylistic conventions. For example, if you if you study iconography of of Egypt or of Mesopotamia and see how do they portray their gods, you can tell the gods apart from one another. This various statues might be different, but there are certain characteristics that they share to signal which god it is. But they, it's not like if you were walking through a mall and you saw someone, you would know. <laughs> You right. would know them by their statue because they're not that exact. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not that much of an exact replica. So yeah, Bale is Bale's not very threatening in his statues that mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. of him. He's a very scrawny stick figure <laughs> guy. You know, Interesting. Arm. Yeah. He's, he's Interesting. not very intimidating, but yet he was terrifying in his actual, you know, the storm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, mm. the, the analogy that I think works the best in my mind, for this idea of what is lost in Genesis 3 is the relationship between a parent and a child. Okay. So in Genesis 5, it says that Adam was in the image of God, and then Adam bore, gave birth to Seth or bore Seth, and Seth was Adam's image. Mm-hmm. And I, some people think that that's saying Seth is not the image of God, but it doesn't say that. Um, it, what, it says is, what it says to me is that a son is the f- image of his father in a similar the way that we are the image of God. That is to say there's a genetic link or a bio- almost a biological link between us and God. We're, we're part of God's royal family. What happens in Genesis 3 is estrangement between mm. parent and child. There's still a genetic link if we if we follow that analogy, you can be a parent and child can be completely estranged from one another and not be in relationship with one another. And it's painful, but there's still parent and child. You can't erase the origin story of this child came into the world with my chromosomes or my DNA. Like they they sh- 
I was part of bringing them into existence. You can't erase the past. All you can do is stop talking to each other. Mm-hmm. So the the breach between or the brokenness in the relationship is, I think, what's happening in Genesis 3. And if you want the relationship to flourish, you have to turn towards each other and reconcile. And that's what we're being called to do in Christ. That We're ministers of reconciliation, helping the world to come back in relationship with the God who is their father. Mm-hmm. And and so there's no there's not been any shattering of the actual image there's just been an estrangement hmm. okay. that's waiting waiting to be reconciled folks this is why i bring carmen on to fix our theology <laughs> when it needs it in light of biblical scholarship <laughs> the danger with any so I, I would preempt some of the comments that i'm sure will probably come on this uh whenever you talk about theological, biblical concepts that are like the the image and the likeness, those were literal things in the ancient Mm -hmm. world. And so there is a degree of metaphor happening or or a degree of non-literal language. Um, Mm -hmm. And so whenever you talk about that, you run the risk of doing, and I think this happens with the spirit, soul, and body question, Mm -hmm. is you run the risk of over- concretizing, I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm going to say it, mm-hmm. over-concretizing something that scripture is more fluid on. You and I have talked about this mm-hmm. in our videos uh, where we talked about the work of your mutual friends, uh, John Walton and Michael Heiser, mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. They, they were sort of are kind of on the ends of a spectrum and there's a yep. lot in between. To what degree do we press biblical images Mm-hmm. for exact precision of literalism. And I think yeah. with Thessalonians, that verse that could very well just be, have been an offhand, uh, normal way of of signing off an ancient letter in the mm-hmm. Greco-Roman world. It might've just yeah. been a way of, of just talking about a whole person, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, uh, 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 what, uh, not, is it Hendiades? Hendiades? Yeah. Hind- yeah. Hendiades. Hendiades. I can never yep. pronounce it yep. right. It well, could just I don't be, know if that's how to say it. But that's how I say it. <laughs> I, well, they're better than me. I just see it red. Um, but exactly. this, th- this could be nothing more than a hen triad, uh, a <laughs> three in one yeah. uh, kind of uh, Hindi is for those who don't know is when you 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 don't mean two things you mean one thing but you say two things so uh, so a word a noun and another noun joined by and sometimes are de- there the second one is describing the first one and it's actually mm-hmm. one entity right and and there are a number of examples throughout scripture I sat in on uh, one of Doug Stewart's uh, intermediate Hebrew classes the other night with a friend of mine a couple weeks ago and and that was the syntax that they were looking at nice. was blank and blank, but it just really mm-hmm. means yep. the whole thing. And yep. so spirits on the body could easily be a way of just saying all of you, like we'd say kitten yeah. caboodle or, yep. you know, something like that. Yep. It's just, it just means everything. The the whole nine yards, although that's not him yeah. that's just a figure of speech, but right. it could just be that. To, and, and to be clear, I haven't studied that passage or that concept in the New Testament extensively mm. enough to be certain about what Paul is trying to do there. I am just skeptical of reading that back into Genesis because that is right. not how Hebrew thought works with relation to how, how bodies are or how how personhood is described or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, what, what are the parts that make us who we are. 
Right. It's it's a case of if if that is what if Paul did mean or if Paul did think of humanity as tripartite. Yeah. Um, he wasn't that wasn't from anything in the Hebrew Bible. It, the Hebrew Bible right. doesn't go in it that would have direction. been it would have been a later development or even you could call it part of progressive revelation that he that he's now describing humanity in a way that's not native to the, the Old Testament. Right. So I I struggle with any readings of the Old Testament that involve reading backwards, importing meaning from the New Testament and putting mm-hmm. it in the Old Testament. I would struggle with the same idea. Um, so many people read the the phrase "Let us make humankind in our image" as a reference to the Trinity. I believe in the Trinity mm-hmm. to be clear, but I do not think that the author of Genesis or his initial hearers or readers would have thought they were hearing about the Trinity. So this seems much more likely to me in that ancient context that it's a reference to the divine council, that God is is speaking to his heavenly host of angels who surround his throne. We get only a few glimpses of this in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. but um, you can see it in Job chapter 1. Uh, what's another good example? Oh, 1 Kings 22. Have fun mm-hmm. with that one. Uh, there's a... <laughs> There's a vision of God's uh, throne room host, and he's speaking. Another one is Isaiah 6. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Uh, he's speaking to his angelic host. So that seems to me what what is the, the best explanation for, for why God says, let us, in Genesis 1. So then let me, let, let me uh, not us, let me ask you, <laughs> it, this, is, this is my, okay, so we're, we're kind of veering off topic, but we've got a couple of minutes. Uh, and so I have you here. Let me, why not ask you questions I want to ask you? That's the whole fun of having this type of show. Yeah. <laughs> I, I vacillate. And, and this came up in a previous viewer question. We did a video on the, um, the Malach Yahweh, the angel of God. Who is the angel of the Lord? Is it pre-incarnate Christ? Is it God in angel form? Is mm-hmm, it like mm-hmm. a super duper angel? Mm-hmm. And we, we kind of did a deep dive on that question. And this is similar this is along similar lines and and where I ended up when, when it comes to the, who is us, let us make God and let let Mm -hmm. us create man in our image. The, the pros and the cons, this is kind of, and I don't, this is not settled in my mind with the divine counsel view. It makes sense because of exactly those other passages that you talked Mm -hmm. about. Mm Mm-hmm. And we had a glitch in a, a minute ago. I actually pressed my finger on a thing. So viewers, if you heard Carmen's voice get really weird and saw the fl- screen flash, if I can't edit it out, I may not. And that's just what that was. But I was trying to pull up a particular passage. When it comes to those, the the divine counsel, the, uh, the strongest arguments are what you've said, that there are other instances of God talking to his divine counsel. Mm-hmm. To me, though, the biggest problem, and I want to hear how you resolve this, because this is Mm -hmm. right in your wheelhouse. The biggest problem is him saying, let us create mankind in our image. Mm -hmm. I don't see anywhere else where we, it seems like scripture goes out of its way to say, we're not the image of angels Mm. or or any Mm. other divine beings, but Mm -hmm. only God. And that's what kind of keeps a sliver of plausibility in my mind that Mm. the Holy Spirit was giving a glimpse of what would later open up into a full Trinitarian concept. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it, it's what keeps me from being able to fully embrace the image, uh, the the divine counsel view. So okay. what, am, what am I missing or how do you respond on that objection? I I hear you on that. So Richard Middleton thinks that we are, are in the image of the divine counsel. Uh, so he or he suggests that in his book, The Liberating Image. Mm-hmm. Many other people feel like, oh, no, I, that doesn't work theologically. I think it's possible to to conceive of the divine council has a role in God's ad- heavenly administration, mm-hmm. and he's giving us a role in his earthly administration. And so there is something analogous to our role on earth and the angelic role in heaven. We are not the same. We're not on the same plane, but there is a similarity of function okay. that I think might warrant a let us make in our image um, it, that presumes that the divine council is is aligning themselves properly with God's rule and they haven't rebelled. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we could conceive of that as being the case still in Genesis 1. Hmm. Okay. So that's a maybe. And and maybe it's maybe the the hour is it maybe it's pressing it too hard to mm-hmm. say now we're in the image of angels. God is the one talking and it's like it's like a parent saying to a child, okay, what shall we do? Or where shall right. we go? And when it's really the parent who's going to be doing the doing or or you know, driving the family somewhere, it's yeah. there there's a, a kind of accommodation to like, I'm gonna let you in on my deliberations, even though you actually have no control over this and I get to I get the final say. Mm-hmm. This is the thing that I love about biblical Hebrew that drives many people crazy about (laughs) biblical Hebrew is there are these ambiguities that you can make. And I want viewers to know I'm like, I'm not pushing back against what Carmen's saying, but I'm also not being like, that's the right thing. I, Mm. I'm okay living in the unsettledness of that answer and just pointing out, these are the things to consider. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think you're making a really good case. And so I I always want to just. For God to say in Isaiah 6, who will go for us, it's like, well, it's mm-hmm. really Yahweh who needs the emissary. Like, they're, they're got, Yahweh is looking for a human volunteer or a human representative to carry out his will. Mm-hmm. He, it, it's like he's graciously including the angels in, in that, the us, even though really he's the one calling it, the shots. Do you see it as possibly do you see any validity to what would be the a traditional not the but a traditional jewish interpretation that would say it is a plural of majesty it is a figure of speech or do you think that is going too far to try to distance what seems a lot clearer which is divine counsel yeah Uh, so i think if it's a royal we, then we would need other examples of Hebrew using the royal we. And I'm guessing that where that would land us is in these same throne room scenes in which God is speaking to the angelic hosts. So then you can sort of call that a royal we because God's saying we, but he really means I, Mm -hmm. but he's saying it to someone. And that's why he says, let us. And the someone is all the angels. Mm. (laughs) These are fun things to 
for <laughs> biblical scholars to wrestle with and to publish yeah. and then counter publish and then rebut and then respond and <laughs> job um, security. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I kind of the image the image I have of when it comes to this question, just like when it comes to the who are the sons of God and the daughters of men and enough we wrote. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. see like a Venn diagram and I see you have three overlapping answers. And mm-hmm. some people are like, no, it's only this. And some are like, it's only this. And some are like, well, it's all of them. And I don't know where I land on those. Yeah. But, but I know what's that very... we have to be aware of the ways that people handle these passages. Yeah. And what's clear in that passage is that somebody crossed a boundary God did not mean for them to cross. Yes. And it had <laughs> disastrous consequences. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but I, I do try to, in our in our Disciple Dojo Study Bible Reviews, for instance, that's one of the reasons I look at passages like this when I'm reviewing the study notes is because I mm-hmm. want viewers to know what resources out there give you a fuller and a balanced Mm-hmm. What resources invite viewers into the discussion mm-hmm. versus resources that say, well, here are the conclusions you can accept and don't even mention the others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, some people are like, well, just, you know, what Carmen said, that's right. And I'm like, what? Well, it probably, I know Carmen well enough to know it probably is, but I also <laughs> know Carmen well enough to know she would say, not necessarily, but it's my right. best you know, exactly. it's where I land right now. <laughs> Do I have some degree of uncertainty about this particular view of the let us? Yes, some some uncertainty. Uh, I have a lot less uncertainty about the meaning of the word selim as yes. being th- three-dimensional and concrete. There are, there are things we hold with various levels of certainty. Mm-hmm. And we always have to be open to, to counter evidence and learning more. Mm-hmm. Amen. Well put, folks. This is why I brought Carmen in to answer this question, because it's way better than an answer I would have given. (laughs) (laughs) So being God's image, uh, this book is, tell me how writing this for you before you go, how was this different than Mm. writing your first book? Uh, you can either, in terms of whether it was easy, whether you had a better idea of yeah. what to expect, or just in terms of reception, or uh, yeah. just compare the two experiences for me. It was easier in it was easier to know what level to write at and sort of how to flow through the project because I had already done it once, and I feel like I hit my sweet spot in terms of writing level. But it was more difficult because it was not my dissertation topic. So I hadn't just spent six years immersed in the in the subject. I had to read a bunch of other people's dissertations and mm-hmm. figure out kind of what's the lay of the land. It's also a far more controversial topic mm-hmm. that people have deeply held beliefs about. Uh, there's just long-standing interpretations of the image of God that I was disagreeing with, and that was a bit daunting to do, but I felt like I had to show what I was seeing right. and the reasons why I thought these interpretations don't work. And so it was a little bit, it, it was harder to wrap my mind around all the research and a little bit more nerve-wracking to release it to the world, knowing that there are going to be people out there who disagree and argue against me. And I've been a little whom- surprised. Some of whom are friends of yours or, or colleagues, yes. people that you know and have a really good relationship with. Yes. What this doesn't always get put forth in public spaces like Disciple Dojo is trying mm-hmm. to be a public mm-hmm. space where people can kind of see how it how what goes on behind the scenes. How yeah. do you navigate writing something that you know, like this person who I really have a tremendous amount of respect for, and I recommend their work to people regularly, mm-hmm. but I'm gonna disagree with them on this. Some people yeah. that would be an 
just an, a, a cauldron of anxiety to yes. even do that and print it publicly. Yeah. And others would say, well, that's, that's going to, you know, how do you navigate hurt feelings or, you know, reputation, like attacking somebody? Or yeah. I think you start by not attacking people who have different views than you do, but by what shocking, but, but, <laughs> I know. Right. Um, but by actually identifying places where you've benefited from their work and places where you overlap, because what we tend to do in arguments is we we think that the person we're disagreeing with is way on the other spectrum, the other end of the spectrum, when in reality, like the world is a much bigger spectrum and we're actually quite close together. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if we need to remember that and mm-hmm. then I think I don't go I don't go out of my way to advertise my disagreements with people. Mm. I tend to focus on recommending work that I have found helpful and why I found it helpful and minimizing the disagreements. Mm. There are times to actually have the conversation about why I think that's wrong, but those are best. I think those conversations are best done in person when you can hear the other person's reason and the, the context that led them to that conclusion and they can nuance it and you you might discover you actually have more common ground than you thought well i'll tell you that's not a way to get a lot of youtube followers the way to get a lot of youtube followers is you put their face on your thumbnail with you going you know and then like some kind of angry polemical title that's how you get an audience (laughs) that's what's sad about the the discourse and it, it is what so there are some people who do a really good job at navigating it. I think you do a great job of disagreeing with someone in in love and not even like just in love, but like disagreeing in admiration, like mm. disagreeing, mm. but making it clear that you really admire this person. And that's what I strive to do here at Disciple mm-hmm. Dojo, because we want to, you know, like it, it's a dojo you go, I joke all the time. My best friends regularly try to strangle me or break my arm. We train together. We try <laughs> yeah. to hurt each other, yeah. not hurt each other, but we try to beat each other. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as the bell ends and the timer round goes off, we hug and are just like, thank you so yep. much. I yep. didn't realize I had this hole in my game. I need to work on this because you caught me with this move three or four times. Yep. Yeah. And I think biblical, biblical scholarship has a beautiful parallel to that. I had someone ask, uh, ask me to review a book. They sent me a copy of a book and they asked if I'd review it because I do, uh, well, I won't say mm-hmm. what the topic is cause I don't want to even get, yep. get into that, but they asked me to review a book and I read it and I, I said, I, I really strongly don't like this book, <laughs> the argument yeah. that it's making, the, the tone, the everything. And the person who sent it to me said, well, so and so, the author would be op- probably be open to a critique if you wanted to talk to him. And, and I told him, I said, I do want to talk to this author, but mm-hmm. not about not initially about something we disagree on. Like I'd rather yeah. meet and hear and see other work that they've done and yep. start with common ground, and then yep. eventually maybe we could get to the disagreement. And so maybe yeah. I hope I'll get to meet the person and see some of their other work. But when yeah. you go into something with the goal of critique, criticizing, not yeah, in the healthy sense. It's just not fun. No, yeah. no. And it, it yeah. makes, it gets, it, it fires up your base. If you have a base, you know, like your yeah. fans yep. are like on your side oh. and then their fans are on their side. And I've had, I've had a little bit of this on social media with 
people who are either fans or anti-fans of John Walton mm-hmm. and fans or anti-fans of Michael Heiser. And what I want people out there to know who are not scholars is that it's possible to disagree with someone on something and still remain good friends. Yes. John Walton and I do not see eye to eye on everything, but I've benefited tremendously from his work and we're having breakfast together next month. <laughs> And and he's buying because we we appreciate each other and we have both refused to endorse each other's books, mm-hmm. but we're still friends, right? So it and and same with Michael Heiser. There are some people out there who are very annoyed with me or upset with me that I won't go all the way and say everything Michael Heiser says. And I think what they don't realize is Michael Heiser was okay with the fact that I don't see eye to eye with him on everything. And we still had a good relationship and he still valued my work and I still value his, even though we don't see eye to eye. But sometimes the next generation down doesn't give the same kind of latitude allowing for scholarly disagreement. And so I would just encourage everybody out there not to assume that because two people have different ideas, they can't be friends. Amen. Amen. It, I, I have to bring up one other jujitsu analogy because it's just so apt. It is that there's a thing where you're in, that you'll have two instructors of rival teams and they get along really well, but their students hate each other. Because they think sure. that the honor of their instructor is on the line and they have yeah, to defend, sure. you know, and it's this at its best, it creates a good rivalry that makes everybody better as long as people know. Off the mats, we're great friends and we like each other and we help each other. Yeah, and yeah. It, and so scholarship wise, I see that knowing you and knowing other scholars who have been here on Disciple Dojo who I've met at SBL, it to me it's a beautiful thing to see people who've who strongly and candidly disagree on something professionally. Mm-hmm. Yes. Still have that not just scholarly unity, but body of Christ unity. Like, oh, we yeah. Are... Praying, praying for each other and and <laughs> and having meals together. And yeah, this yeah. is this is where it's at. I could not agree more. And I think that's a great segue to end on. Um, I know you have a busy day out there in sunny California. I've got mm-hmm. to go teach uh, refugee kids how to choke each other. So Sweet. we both have <laughs> slightly different evening plans, but um, it, it really is. I'm I'm always happy when you come on. And what's great about this week, so viewers may not know, but just this week alone, you're the uh, second guest that I've interviewed. I interviewed our mutual friend Esau McCulley yes, uh, the day before yesterday. Sorry. And then tomorrow I'm interviewing Jace Clark about his number. What a commentary. week. So this has been a biblical scholarship overload for me. <laughs> I don't know when this video will get released. Maybe I, I'm gonna try to get it out by the end of the weekend at least. But um oh, it's yeah. is such a pleasure talking to you. I can't wait to see you again at SBL and yep. to hang out some more and, and and just talk Bible nerd stuff and to catch up. So Carmen, yeah. thank you so, so, so much for taking time to stop yeah. into the dojo. You are, like I said, you're, you're getting close to black. Esau said I had to give him his blue belt next time he comes on. Cause that's the second <laughs> jujitsu belt. This I saw would make it and you... I was wondering it, like, what other belt do I have? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, there are five belts in jujitsu. And I think this is your third, this is your third time coming on. I believe. Is it not possibly my fourth? You're either a purple or a brown belt. I'll go back and talk, check. Do I get do I get points when you talk about me with without being on? Oh, <laughs> that's like, like black belt. That's like a stripe on your belt. Each belt's have okay. four stripes. So okay, I got lots of stripes then. <laughs> yes, you absolutely have lots of stripes. Um, 
Carmen, you're one of my favorite people. And Dojo viewers, go get a copy of Being God's Image and read it and learn from what Carmen's saying because she's doing some great work. And we're looking forward to the next time she's able to stop in. Thanks a lot, Carmen. Great to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks for the question, JM. Good to see you. As always, it is a pleasure when I get to talk to my friend, Dr. Carmen Imes, and I'm so thankful that she took some time out of her afternoon, her super busy schedule to stop by the dojo and answer a viewer question, a really good viewer question. If you would like to submit your own questions, we have a video here. There's a process you have to do because I don't see all of the questions that people put on social media or in YouTube comments. So there's a way you can submit your question here at Disciple Dojo, and I keep a running list of them. And the ones that I'm able to answer, I try to answer as helpfully as I'm able to. And when I can't, like in this episode, I call in someone who can. So as always, thank you so much for watching. Be sure if you haven't already, click the subscribe button, click the notifications icon, check out our other videos here on the channel, our interviews with other biblical scholars. There's a lot going on. Disciple Dojo, we do a lot of different things all with the goal of helping equip, engage, empower God's people in their biblical knowledge and in their daily discipleship. If that's something you want to support tangibly, we would love for you to consider becoming a monthly Disciple Dojo donor at whatever amount you're able to give. But even if you're not able to give anything financially, just liking, sharing this video, leaving a comment, engaging with this channel here on YouTube, tremendously helpful. And please lift us up in prayer that the people who need to see Disciple Dojo content would be drawn to see it, that it would pop up in their algorithm on their YouTube feed, and that this channel would help generate genuine excitement and hunger among viewers to better know the biblical texts and ultimately the overall author of those texts. That's all for now. We'll see you next time back here at Disciple Dojo. As always, keep training. Yeah.